today. If you have a copy of God's Word in print or digital form, I'd invite you to join me. We're continuing our study through the 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year, doing quick overviews and keeping that big picture in mind. And today we find ourselves in Luke's Gospel. Uh, I don't know if you're watchers of the Olympics. Uh, We are in our family. We really enjoy that. I think there's something sort of epic about the Olympics. There's something global uh, of all the nations uh, coming together, this sort of invitation for all to come and participate in this competition. Uh, Even nations like Togo, Right? I mean, it's kind of, I, I enjoy watching the Pride of Nations, and particularly some of those smaller countries. There's not a lot of resources. Maybe you know that they've been fighting an uphill battle uh, to, to get to the place that they're at. Um, there's just something really beautiful about that. And I, I, I'm mindful that there will be another Parade of Nations uh, that will take place uh, at the end of the age when those who have been redeemed from every tongue and tribe. Uh, will be gathered together in God's kingdom around his throne. And uh, Luke has something of that quality here. He, he is, uh, as Craig mentioned, he extends uh, a, a universal invitation. There, he, he, he captures this aspect of Jesus and his particular concern for those who are on the margins, for those who are outcasts, those who are rejected by society, those who have baggage, and he calls out to them with open arms uh, to, to, to come to him. So uh, we're going to explore this. It's a very encouraging book as we think about that great invitation that's been extended uh, to us. Uh, now, Luke tells the same essential story or the account of Jesus' life as the other gospel writers. Right? Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus. Actually, we get our only glimpses of the childhood of Jesus from Luke's gospel. Uh, We read about Jesus' preparation for ministry, his ministry in the rural region of Galilee in the north, and then his journey to Jerusalem with particular focus on the final week of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So that's common of all the gospel accounts. But each of the gospel writers also brings their own distinct perspectives and angles So who was Luke, and what was his unique contribution to our understanding of Jesus? Uh, We would want to point out that Luke was a Gentile. It means he was not a Jew. Okay, He was part of the the surrounding nations um, and not part of the people of Israel. Uh, Paul had identified several of his co-workers, Uh, as Jewish Christians, but then he included Luke among a list of people who were Gentile co-workers. Not only was Luke a Gentile, but he was also writing to Gentiles. He wrote to a man named Theophilus. Uh, We read about this in the opening verses of Luke. Uh, We don't really know much about Theophilus. Uh, Probably he was a patron. It was pretty expensive to write and and, uh, writing materials and papyruses and scrolls and this sort of thing was not uh, was not cheap and so you generally had a sponsor or a patron who would help underwrite the cost of it and probably Theophilus was that person for Luke 
Uh, there's a little designation alongside of Theophilus. Uh, Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. And in the three other times where that little title is used, it is referring to a high-ranking Roman official. So we get the sense Theophilus was a person of means. He's probably an influential person in Greek or Roman society. But in any regards, Theophilus was, like Luke, an outsider to Israel. And that's really significant for us, isn't it? Most of us are outsiders to Israel. We're not Jewish. And so Luke brings a unique uh, Gentile perspective. Luke is also a physician. Uh, He was not a teacher or a theologian, but a medical doctor. Here's the designation out of Colossians 4, where Paul writes, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. And we see this come through in Luke as well. He reflected a compassion and a sensitivity for those who are disabled and suffering, whether it be physically or emotionally. Uh, He wrote with a rich vocabulary, uh, provided vivid descriptions. I think of the account of the the Malchus' ear that was cut off there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We get some of the, the best color commentary in Luke's Gospel. Uh, when Jesus is, uh, uh, has, has given up the Spirit, he's died on the cross. They pierce his side with a spear, and out comes blood and water. There's a physiological description going on there that, that confirmed that Jesus had not just swooned, but he had died, right? And Luke's the one that brings us a lot of these great little insights. Whenever we have lunch with the DeCriegers, we get all this great descriptions of what, what's going on in the Hospital of Hope, and... Uh, it's not always, not everybody's comfortable with that conversation at the dinner table, but in that hospital setting, you know, there's just uh, all of this. So this is, this is his world, Luke's world, and he was offering a scientific perspective. He wrote with tremendous thoroughness. Uh, his account uh, is nearly twice as long as the Gospel of Mark. So again, that's, that would make sense. He's a careful thinker. Luke was also a historian. I want to read these opening verses from Luke's Gospel. Luke 1.1, 1, 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke acknowledges that there were others who had written accounts of Jesus' life, and he recognizes he was not one of the disciples. He did not see these things firsthand. Rather, he was a researcher. He interviewed, he investigated, he checked out all of the information and eyewitness testimonies, he did his research, and he compiled it into an orderly, carefully documented account. He wanted to give assurance and confidence to Theophilus and to others who were seeking to investigate and understand the Christian faith. We could also note that Luke was a traveler. Uh, matter of fact, Paul, in two places, uh, recognizes Luke's presence. Uh, here's Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. 
And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then again in 2 Timothy 4, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So 2 Timothy 4, I mean, these are the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote. He is in a a Roman prison. He's awaiting execution. And he identifies Luke as not just one who traveled with him periodically, but one who who really uh, stayed the course and was with him through thick and thin. A really faithful traveling companion. So I think this too is helpful. Um, Luke was not sitting in some ivory tower somewhere. He was on the ground, um, involved in the missionary activity of the early church. The other thing we we need to know that, that ties into this is that the Gospel of Luke is part one of a two volume set. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts, which is the the ongoing story, right, of the church and the spread of the gospel. So if you look at the two prologues, you see the similarities. They're both written to Theophilus, and in Acts, Luke references his former book, right, the gospel account. And so uh, if you look carefully at the, at the, the, the book of Acts, uh, Luke subtly hints at the places where he was present. He shifts his pronouns, and instead of talking about they, he talks about we. So you can tell where Luke was present along the way in Paul's missionary journeys. So Luke is bringing this missionary perspective. He's, he's a global person, and that is very evident in how he writes his gospel account. So Luke's angle, uh, we, could, we could cite a few different things that sort of are distinctive about Luke's gospel. Uh, he, he definitely stresses the humanity of Jesus. One of his favorite titles for Jesus was the Son of Man, like the, the consummate human. Um, Matthew, for example, in his gospel stresses the Jewishness of Jesus, but Luke stresses the humanity of Jesus. Matthew presents a genealogy of Jesus, and he traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. But Luke, in his genealogy of Jesus, traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam. (laughs) Jesus was not just a descendant of Abraham, he was a descendant of Adam. He was the consummate human. Jesus grew and developed like other children. Uh, Jesus grew in knowledge and in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Uh, How we understand that is a mystery, right? I mean, the Son of God, how did he grow in knowledge? But he did. I mean, Luke captures that. The humanity was not just a mask that he wore. He was human. He, He was not some superhero unaffected by the suffering of humanity. He agonized over his impending crucifixion, sweating drops of blood. Another physiological statement that Luke includes there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, he was an insider to our humanity. 
Uh, Jesus' pattern of prayer, this is another one that, that kind of is distinctive in Luke. Um, boy, just over and over again, Jesus' example in prayer, his teaching on prayer. And I think in some ways, it's part of how Luke communicates Jesus' humanity. That Jesus did not simply, again, have infinite knowledge and always know what to do. He, he, he was prone to depression and anxiety. Uh, and he understood his need to continually take his concerns to the Father. Um, so we see it at the outset of his public ministry. He's in prayer. When the crowds and the distractions begin to multiply, he prioritizes prayer. He retreats uh, to solitary places to pray. When he's facing important decisions like choosing the 12 uh, apostles, the 12 disciples, he spends the whole night in prayer. I mean, didn't he already know who he was going to choose? I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, he wrestled through that um, before his crucifixion, again, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he was being crucified. Two of his seven recorded statements were prayers to the Father. So this is a very, very strong emphasis here in Luke's gospel. The Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is certainly also very prominent um, In the birth narratives, obviously, the, the Spirit was involved in the conception uh, through the Virgin Mary. The Spirit inspired Elizabeth, Zechariah, and Simeon to speak words of prophecy about Jesus' birth. Of course, all the Gospels tell us that the Spirit came on Jesus as a dove at his baptism. But Luke goes on to say that Jesus returned to Galilee. He began his public ministry in the power of the Spirit. And he told his disciples that they would carry out their mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. And this is clearly fulfilled in the book of Acts. That strong theme of the Spirit's work, of course, is evident when you get into the, 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 the growth of the early church. So this, too, is a distinctive element in, in Luke's gospel. So there's a few threads we could think about. But I, I want to spend our time thinking about this, this aspect of uh, the, the, the universal uh, offer of the gospel to all people, okay? Uh, th- this is, uh, I, I think, the, the, the takeaway I want you to have from Luke's gospel. Um, Jesus is particularly interested in showing Jesus as the Savior of the world. And I want to I give you three assertions today that I think sort of help us think through uh, uh, this, this theme. Here's the first. Jesus came to bring salvation to all people. He came to bring salvation to all people. And this is communicated in a few different ways in Luke's gospel. First of all, it's foreshadowed. In other words, it's sort of hinted at uh, from the very outset, even the birth narrative, right? John the Baptist's John the Baptist was going to come before Jesus, right? He was going to, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, but John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was childless and, as a result, was disgraced in the ancient world. And she speaks of her disgrace and how that disgrace was lifted. Um, Mary and, of course, Joseph were, were young and poor. Uh, Jesus was placed in a feed trough. Uh, that tells you something about their socioeconomic situation. 
Uh, when they go to offer uh, uh, an offering at Jesus' dedication at the temple, uh, they can't offer the normal offering required in the law. They have to offer the, the lowest offering, which is the, pi- the, 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 the pigeons. Um, so that, 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 again, gives us an indication. And the despised shepherds, right, the bottom of the food chain, were the ones who were invited to celebrate his birth. So this is what I mean by just foreshadowed. Like it, this is hinted at before anybody really says anything. It, it's sort of there. We get a sense for the, the type of kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. It certainly was also pronounced. Uh, this becomes very overt. The angel told the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11 Uh, Jesus' dedication in the temple, Simeon declared that Jesus' birth would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So in some sense, Jesus' birth was going to illuminate things for the Gentiles, for the nations of the world. And at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, he too speaks to this. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus was very overt. He had come to to bring salvation to broken, hurting, desperate people. Now, the people of Nazareth, his hometown, were not real excited about this, and they they were a bit skeptical. They were very skeptical. (laughs) They said, isn't this Joseph's son, right? Isn't this the son of the carpenter? Who does he think he is talking like this? And Jesus puts a shot across the bow here. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus says, if you don't believe, the message will go to others who will believe. And he cites a couple of these Old Testament examples where there was no faith in Israel. And God chose to work miraculously among the nations of the world. So Jesus, again, is very overt. This message is much bigger than Israel, and it's not just for the religious elite. This is for everybody. Not only was it foreshadowed here in Luke's gospel, not only was it pronounced, 
but it was also demonstrated. Jesus uh, put his money where his mouth was, right? And he, throughout Luke's gospel, demonstrated his universal concern for all people. Uh, He showed concern for the disabled. Time and time again, I'm thinking of the paralytic, right? The guy who was paralyzed, and there was so many people in the house, he couldn't even get in to, to talk to Jesus. And so his friends hoisted him up on the roof, and they pulled back the tiles and, and lowered him down through there. And Jesus uh, commended them for their faith and brought about a tremendous healing. That's just one of many examples in that regard. Jesus showed concern for the disreputable. Again, these are, these are people who were outcasts. Uh, the tax collectors, right, despised by the Jewish people, uh, lepers who were not only physically, uh, uh, you know, having these skin diseases and such, but but they were also unclean. That meant they couldn't go into the temple. They couldn't participate in the normal rhythms of worship. Um, prostitutes, Samaritans. Uh, these kind of ethnic half-breeds, again, who were looked down on by the Jewish people, the ceremonially unclean, uh, violent criminals, right? Like the criminal on the cross who had, the term would lead us to think he had murdered someone. He didn't just go, he wasn't a petty thief. He had committed violent crimes. And yet, Jesus offers him paradise. You know, this is uh, the, the disreputable people uh, Jesus showed great concern for them. Jesus showed concern for women. Uh, he raised a widow's son back to life, knowing that this woman was in a vulnerable position without a husband and now without a son. He praised the widow who gave her only copper coins in the offering box. Remember that? And a number of women were included as an active part of Jesus' ministry team. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 uh, Luke's the only one that really records that, and I don't, we don't think about it that much. There was a sizable group of women who traveled from town to town with Jesus. They supported his ministry financially, maybe organized efforts in other regards. We, we don't know all the details, but Luke's the one that draws our attention to it. Jesus showed concern for the spiritually oppressed, of course, those who had demons. We, Kevin read about uh, the man with a legion of demons who was delivered. Jesus showed concern for children when the disciples were irritated and bothered and wanted to keep them out of the circle. Jesus invited them in. Jesus showed concern for the poor. The account of the rich man and Lazarus is one of the more pointed statements about God's concern for the poor. Uh, Jesus showed concern for the nations. He healed the daughter of a Roman centurion. Um... Again, uh, just a number of, of those accounts and, and a great declaration at the end of the gospel account that the gospel was to be preached to all nations. So I don't know where you are this morning. Um, we all come with baggage, whether that be sexual sin or, or physical brokenness or divorce, relational brokenness. Um, we, we all have those times when maybe we think, you know, I, God could never love me, right? Or this is the last. I'm, I'm sure God, after that most recent failure, uh, certainly God doesn't want to hear from me, right? We can play those games in our minds. 
Boy, Luke's gospel just cuts across that (laughs) to express, God, not only don't your sins disqualify you, they actually make you a particular object of Jesus' concern. And so this, this whole theme that Jesus has come to bring salvation to all people. The second thing I want us to note is, uh, is that the greatest salvation is accomplished through Jesus' work on the cross. There's all these miracles. There's all this healing, right? There's the, the blind being made to see. There's demon-oppressed people who can now sit in their right mind and be clothed and enter back into society. Uh, there's, uh, uh, yeah, all, all of these different wonderful things that Jesus does. And yet, there's something even bigger going on here. In chapter 9 is the, the, the shift, the hinge point in Luke's gospel. In most studies, or if you look at a, a New Testament survey resource, you would probably see a big uh, dividing line here in Luke chapter 9. And this is where Jesus begins to move toward Jerusalem and the cross. So these miracles, these healings were only the opening act. They were meant to validate Jesus' identity But the real mission, the real salvation, uh, was much bigger. Jesus didn't come simply to fix our physical problems, make our lives easier. He came to deliver us from our greatest enemies, sin and death. And there's a number of passages here in Luke's Gospel that really crystallize this. I want to just draw attention to a couple. Uh, One is this whole description of the suffering Messiah in chapter 9. Jesus kind of presses the disciples, you know, who do you say that I am? And they get it right. You're the Messiah, Peter says. Uh, This was a wonderful designation. Uh, Messiah means anointed one. And in that culture, a king or a prophet would be anointed. They would pour oil over them. They would be identified as God's special person. They would be authorized. And so Jesus is God's authorized representative. He's the one that has been sent into the world with God's authority. And so this is a wonderful idea. But Jesus knew that they didn't understand it the right way. They had in their mind what the Messiah would do. He would be a political deliverer. He would be a military leader. Um, So Jesus goes in here in in chapter 9, verses 21 and following, and for the first time, he tells them about his coming crucifixion. And he says there's going to be exaltation, there is going to be victory, there is going to be conquering, but it's going to come through suffering, it's going to come through the cross. These are new categories for the disciples. I mean, they don't get this. They're pushing back, they're like, why are you talking like this, Jesus? You're not going to die But Jesus helps develop this category of a suffering Messiah, one who would bring deliverance, but in an unlikely way. Uh, There's another section here that describes what I've called the greater exodus. Chapter 9, verses 28 and following, describes uh, what's called the transfiguration. A few of the disciples went up on a mountain, and there they saw Jesus' appearance altered. The the veil was kind of pulled back, and they saw Jesus in all of his glory and his power. 
They were given sort of a glimpse of that. And Jesus is there talking on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. So it's this like hall of fame uh, gathering here. And Luke's the only one that tells us what they were actually talking about, the three of them. He says that they were talking about Jesus' departure, which would be fulfilled or accomplished in Jerusalem. That word departure is a really interesting word. It's usually translated, it's the word exodus. And it's usually describing, right, the the deliverance of the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. And Jesus was going to accomplish a greater exodus in Jerusalem. He was going to deliver people out of the bondage of sin and death. It's a wonderful little glimpse of, of what he was really doing in the midst of all the miracles This is the big thing that he was accomplishing. There's also the journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 51, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's the hinge point in Luke's gospel. Some text translations say that he set his face towards Jerusalem. It's a statement of determination and purpose. And so, again, this this now dominates the narrative. There's a relentless, steady, sometimes painful march to Jerusalem. That was his mission. We see it again here in chapter 19. Verses 41 to 44, this is the end of that journey. Jesus now has come over the Mount of Olives where he now has a panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem and things are hopping. It's the Feast of Passover. Word has spread that Jesus is uh, going to be entering the city and everyone is excited and they're waving the palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, which means deliver us, overthrow the Romans, Jesus. Uh, Jesus... Uh, in this scene of euphoria and joy, begins to cry. And it's not tears of joy. He says, if only you had known what would bring you peace. You, You think you'll have peace if you can just get rid of the Romans. You are so wrong. You will only have peace when you can get rid of your sin. If you'd only known what would bring you peace. Here's another one of those glimpses where the true salvation that Jesus was bringing was not political deliverance or physical healing, but spiritual healing and forgiveness of sin. So again, just a few of the spots where this is really crystallized. Jesus has come to bring salvation for all people, and that true ultimate salvation is accomplished through Jesus' work on the cross. All right, final statement. Those who wish to receive salvation must turn to Jesus in humble faith. Those who wish to receive salvation must turn to Jesus in humble faith. So, the first statement, Jesus come to provide salvation for all people. That's the, that's the what. Uh, 
the, the fact that Jesus has, has come to provide ultimate salvation through his work on the cross, uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's answering the, 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 the true nature of that salvation. And now this is addressing the how. How do we enter into and receive his salvation? We've demonstrated Jesus' concern for all people, but as we look through Luke's gospel, not everyone receives that salvation. What's going on here? Why do some receive this wonderful gift and others reject it? Luke presents a series of contrasts, and I want to just trace out a few of them again that I think drive us to think about where we stand. Jesus has offered this this good news uh, to all, but not all have received it. Uh, There's the test of John's baptism. Here's one of those contrasting places. It's actually a little parenthesis in most of our English translations. It's almost like Luke kind of says, okay, let me give you a little editorial comment here. He says this, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Here's the decoder ring. Here's here's the key to sort of understanding it. The difference was whether a person had been baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist had come offering a baptism of repentance. He had called people to come to the end of themselves to recognize their sins. The people that had come to the end of their rope, that were broken physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, relationally, they were ready to receive Jesus. (laughs) But the people who had accomplished a lot and were doing pretty well in life and had a a healthy sense of of pride, Uh, these are the people that were unwilling to acknowledge their sin. They were unwilling to repent, and they really struggled with Jesus. (laughs) There's there's the contrast. We have the parable of the great banquet, where you have the invitation being given and extended to all, But some people were too preoccupied with their own concerns, distracted by the the issues of the present life, that they rejected a wedding invitation from the king. (laughs) And others who were in the gutters were like, wow, the king invited me? I really stink, but sure, I'll go to the wedding banquet. This is awesome. They recognized what had been extended to them. But the people who were proud and had other things to do turned up their noses at the invitation. Parable of the lost sons, right? Here you have the the, the younger son, the prodigal, who goes off and, and, and spends all of his father's money and wastes so much of his life and riotous living and uh, but he comes back, right, and he humbles himself, and he's welcomed back by the father. And then you have the older son who never left home. But he's estranged from the father. <laughs> he's holding on to his pride. He deserves better, right? 
There's, a, there's a, one of those contrasting places. The person that's welcomed by the Father is the person who humbles themselves. The rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the two criminals on the cross, right? Again, both these violent criminals, both of them deserving exactly what they were getting. <laughs> they deserved to be crucified and executed for their crimes. One of them continued to be arrogant and haughty, and the other humbled himself, recognized his own desperate condition, and asked Jesus to remember him. So here's the contrast, right? The invitation is extended to all, but not all receive that invitation. Started off talking about the Olympics, and uh, we enjoy watching the Olympics. Um, one of the sad stories from the Olympics this year was in regards to this, uh, I had to go back and look at the name again, Shikari, Shikari Richardson, did you watch that? She is a really colorful personality, she the, was the gold medal favorite for the United States, but she was disqualified uh, because she tested positive for marijuana, which uh, is, is on a, a list of banned substances for the Olympic Committee. So uh, a lot of appeals made, but at the end of the day, she was not able to participate. And your heart goes out. I mean, four years of intense, grueling preparation, and you can't use that. But there's these parameters that go with participating in the Olympics. And there's also parameters that go with inclusion in God's kingdom. Now, marijuana use does not preclude you from God's kingdom, not promoting marijuana use, mind you. But whatever you want to put out there in terms of lists of, of, uh, of, of, of sins or questionable behaviors, or uh, none of these things preclude a person from God's kingdom. What precludes you from God's kingdom is your pride. This is, this is the thing, the self-righteousness that keeps a person from receiving the invitation. And so Jesus has come to provide salvation to all people. That's really good news for most of us Gentiles, for those of us with baggage, for those of us who don't deserve God's kindness. And of course, the, the ultimate salvation that he has come to provide is accomplished through his work on the cross. And those who wish to receive that salvation must turn to Jesus in humble faith. I ask you where you are in those contrasting accounts, right? Have you come to the end of yourself? There's a, a critical race theory is a big thing in our culture right now. You, some of you maybe have, have read up a little bit on that. It's kind of a hot-button topic. The, the premise of critical race theory is that the world is divided between oppressors and oppressed. Or we might say the world is divided between sinners and those who have been sinned against. I want to tell you that's not a biblical worldview. We're all sinners. Okay? The distinction in all of humanity is those who acknowledge they're sinners. Those who will humble themselves. And turn up their hands and come as beggars to receive God's grace.
So I call you to receive that invitation that has been offered to the people of Luke's day, of every stripe, and has been offered to us as well.